Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 21, the podcast can drink now. (laughs) (laughs) 21, yeah. For our European listeners, in America, the legal drinking age is 21. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhat arbitrarily. Yeah. Want to go to war? 18. Totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Want to have a Smirnoff ice? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, not to be a huge proponent of alcohol. It is essentially poison, but it is also very dumb how we do it. (laughs) I mean, we could just raise the age of when you can go to war. Or we could abolish war altogether. We could have that not be the thing that we measure things by. Yeah, my genie wishes. Mm -hmm. World peace. Yeah. Hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And health, wealth, and prosperity for me and my family and my friends. Yes. I was looking at the gossip as I am wont to do at times. And I saw your favorite penis-shaped humanoid um, (laughs) and headlines talking about his buff bod as he reclines on some luxury yacht or whatever. And I'm just thinking, imagine just sitting there on a yacht off of Sardinia or whatever the fuck and knowing that you could literally cure, you could eradicate, because it's not a disease, you could eradicate child hunger in the United States and still be one of the richest people on the planet, and instead you go to a yacht off the coast of Sardinia. Mm-hmm. And then you get hero worship. How do you sleep at night if you're a penis-shaped humanoid? Probably like so comfortably. Ugh. I, I mean, one of the main things that appeals to me about striking it rich or, like, winning the lottery is, like, who could I help and what could I do with that money? Like, I I mean, my mom jokes that I, like, I can't hold on to money, which is partly <laughs> true. <laughs> it's like I have 10 bucks. It's just, like, burning a hole in my pocket. But for real, like, if you could literally solve some of our worst social problems just like that imagine and even if i were like a narcissistic douchebag i mean just imagining that like you would get reflected glory on that forever so it's not like there's nothing in it for him i mean he would go down in history as like this great person instead of Mm -hmm. a penis-shaped humanoid why like i just do not understand that level of greed and avarice no i did read though like if you become an instant lottery winner Mm -hmm. it's very hard to give people money how so like it normally destroys people's lives and you're just gonna be sued for the rest of your life Mm. and like if you were to give money to even your family Mm -hmm. you would have to do like hardcore contracts and ndas and see i have this all worked out in my mind it destroys almost all of them like 80 percent of lottery winners end it wishing they'd never won wow no my my way is like i i would tell no one no one and then everything would have to be anonymous 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that would work. But like strangers just start suing lottery yeah. winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For like car accidents that never happened, sexual assaults that never happened, right. harassment that never happened. Right. Mm. California is a no anonymous state. Which is so ridiculous. I would, I would have to do a series of name changes and moves across the country and then eventually out of the country, probably. <laughs> I've thought a lot about this. <laughs> I was also like, well, if I won $100 million, I could pay someone five grand to give me, like, prosthetics. and Yeah, totally. Well, I mean... Yeah, the other thing is if you win the lottery, like I just throw that out, that that hypothetical. You don't usually get all of it in one amount. You get, although I think I've read they say to do it if you have the choice to not get the annuity, to get the lump Mm -hmm. sum. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. If you ever see an Andrew McDaniel that won the lottery, in the photo you're going to see like a very old man in a wheelchair. <laughs> with very convincing prosthetics. Yeah, I mean, they can't tell you how you have to dress. And then, sorry to the podcast, I will disappear from this world. <laughs> Andrew McDaniel will be no longer. I mean, at least you have a somewhat common name. I think there are literally two Kirsten Hammonds in the entire world. And both of them are famous. Me. And mm-hmm. a Danish... Well, she started out as a children's author, but she's just a legit author now. Every Andrew McDaniel has already stolen every domain, every email address, every <laughs> possible thing I could have use for. <laughs> Poor you. Life's hard. Could be worse. Yeah. But that's the that's the way to do it, though. Like, if you win, then, you know, you do a legal name change, Mary Smith, game over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least in the U.S., I can't remember where you fall on the lost spectrum. Loved it, didn't watch it. Oh, loved, obsessed. Okay, so that whole Hurley storyline, I mean, <laughs> I actually wish that they had done more. Like, I wanted just a whole Hurley backstory. But for, like, friends and family, it would have to be, con like... I read a lot of articles. I I got really intent on what would happen if I win the lottery, which is so stupid since I don't buy tickets. (laughs) (laughs) I also do not buy tickets. (laughs) I only buy tickets when it's really, really high and everyone under the sun is playing. But they say before you go claim the lottery, you hire a lawyer. Yeah. Like step one is lawyer. Get a lawyer. And then for like your friends and stuff. You have to do NDAs and contracts that are like, if you ever, A, ask me for more money, or B, tell anyone about this money, you will have to pay me in full immediately. Every dollar back. Wow. Like, you have to be so hard, because a lot of people's families are the ones who destroy them, but then it's also strangers doing lawsuits, and then, like, one man donated, like, a couple million dollars to build a, like gymnasium complex Sunday school he like his family lived in the small town forever mm-hmm. and then everybody was like oh, he could have given five million he's so selfish Ugh. and then the cops pulled him over like 30 times in a year nickel and diming him with tickets <sighs> and things oh and he had to God. leave his hometown it was like everybody is against you after you win the lottery that is awful 
See, that's why I would want it to be secret. Like, you know, those people who you read about in the news, it's just like a janitor or, you know, a secretary or something, and then they die and their relatives find out that they actually had 10 million in savings that they just saved up over the years by being frugal. But they kept living the same way. Another part of my plan, I wouldn't live the same way. Like I would for sure quit my job. I would travel a lot more. I wouldn't live crazy. I mean, no yachts, no, none of that like crazy expense. My plan is to go into vagary. So like, oh, I, I joined a consulting firm. I travel around the world consulting with different business leaders on marketing tactics. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> There's the assumption of a good salary, but not like rich. Mm-hmm. So that sort of explains on my Instagram. <laughs> I have thought about it. <laughs> but I mean, you have a different identity. Do you keep your friends or is it like witness protection? I know some of them listen, but witness protection. Um, <laughs> so I basically, probably... friends, Andrew is telling you without telling you that you're dead to him if he wins a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would probably keep like five mm. with NDAs. Do I make the cut? Of course. <laughs> Everybody else, though, phone number deactivated, social media deactivated. <laughs> you will get a cryptic message that's like, this Instagram account is me. Mm-hmm. He who yeah. shall not be named. <laughs> or you could do the Adele version, too, of stuff kept leaking out about her life to the press. And so she wrote out stories mm-hmm. for each of her friends that mm-hmm. were slightly different mm-hmm. to figure out which friend was leaking to the press. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about people doing that. And then once some fake thing makes it, then you know. Mm-hmm. But Or if it's like conflicting reports, some friends say blah, and then you know, oh shit, it was three of them, and they're all saying slightly different things. And then yeah. other stuff too, like, oh, well, I've got this great friend. If I give them all the money, then does their spouse get half of it if they divorce? Yeah. Like, you got to set up all sorts of legalese and accounts. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a whole lot to win the lottery, but I still want it. I would be your butler. Can I be your butler? My ultimate goal, depending on how much money, would just to essentially buy, like, a big plot of land or even, like, a subdivision. It's not, like, rural per se, but, like, just have my best friends live in different houses but in the same area mm-hmm. and then i can just like take my friends on vacation where it's like hey if you if you can get these two weeks off i got everything covered for a trip to europe or whatever that sounds good uh, but it would be so nice to be like here's your kids college funds and That's what i mean tipping a server five thousand dollars even though i saw that one woman got fired because she refused to split her big tip and the boss fired her i was like absolutely not i'm not splitting that (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh can a boss legally make you split a tip i mean you have to tip your well and that wasn't even the practice it was like this whole bs because Basically, the boss wanted a part of the money. You never split with the boss. You only split with, like, your fellow servers, maybe, or the back kitchen staff. Yeah. 
but the boss fired her because she didn't give yeah. money to the business. <laughs> Even though tipping is the way to continue like slave wages and indentured servitude based off of hurting black people in this country. It's all just so Right, effed. that's messed up. Uh so well, messed up. <laughs> well, after that chipper beginning. Speaking have... of tipping, I have been cow tipping before, but I've never <laughs> done pig tipping. <laughs> just desperate to transition somehow uh well yeah i don't know that's your department actually to clarify i have never gone cow tipping and that is a person growing up on a farm with cows and maybe that's why it's like why would you do that to them it's mean yeah totally I also, I mean, I grew up farm adjacent and spent a lot of time on farms and in farming communities. And at school, we definitely heard about people who did it, but I think generally everyone looked down on those people. It's cruel. Yeah. So that was a, a comedic effect to get to a transition. I'd like to just go on record and say I've never actually done that. <laughs> never. Would never. Cows are sweet and harmless. Yeah. Uh, cows. <laughs> <laughs> Pigs also pretty sweet. No. Smart. Spawns of Satan. <laughs> Extremely smart. And in a way that it's like probably unethical to do what we do to them. But I hated the pigs growing up. I hated them so much. Why? What did they ever do They're to you? They're vicious. They're also so smart. They try to escape all the time and until you and your family have to chase down a hog you'll never know how difficult that is now listen where i grew up entertainment was a greased pig chase and i'm not kidding. i'm talking about a big old pigs revert they're the fastest evolutionary reverters they <laughs> once they get off the farm they grow start to grow tusks back they grow fur they are they have no natural predators. They're overwhelming ecosystems in over 35 states. I got a beef with pigs. Apparently. Well, Hate them. Fortunately, they're delicious, so. I made a Christmas ham. That was so good. <laughs> and I've got bacon in the fridge to cook. You're killing me here. All of your food. All right, let's I'm get into tick. our episode. Yeah. You won't want to eat after this one. No, you will not want to eat, especially pig after this one. Yes. All right. I'm just going to jump right in. That was like the wackiest, most all over the place transition yet, which is saying something, but I'm going to just go with it. So this week, as we have alluded to, not very subtly, we are taking a look at what is known as the Picton pig murders. And it is, in fact, Canada's worst serial case. And just a point of interest, our very first listener suggested episode. So shout out to our loyal listener, Chuck. Amazingly, I had never heard of this one. Had you, Andrew? I had adjacently, and also one of my best friends is Canadian. So maybe that came into it, too. She loves true crime as well. This was totally new to me. So, Chuck, we are grateful for the tip. And if you listening right now have an idea for an episode, send it to us. You can either go to the website, mostfowlpod.com, and click on write in. We have a handy little form. Or you can email us at mostfowlpod at gmail.com. 
Okay, so back to the episode at hand. I mentioned we were going to talk today about the worst serial case in Canadian history. And going by number of victims, this is most definitely the worst, like by a lot. I'm talking, of course, about Robert Willie Picton of Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. Now, I want to start with a disclaimer, as I sometimes do. This story centers heavily around the struggles of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQIA folks. Neither Andrew nor I identify with this historically oppressed group, and we want to acknowledge that. We will use in this episode the terms Indigenous, Aboriginal, First Nations, Native, and Indian, according to source usage or group preference when available, but in absence of a source, we will use the term Indigenous. We acknowledge that these terms have distinct connotations and applications of which we are not experts. But we always want to learn and do better. So if you have feedback on this topic or criticisms for us, please share it with us at mostfoulpod at gmail.com. Please do. Okay, so let's begin. Now, because our audience is mostly not Canadian, I'm going to give a little info on Canadian policing as it pertains to jurisdictional issues in this case. You know, it's, it's just different enough from the United States that I think it's worth covering. So in Canada, we first have the world-famous Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP. That is the federal law enforcement agency in Canada. The Mounties, as they are also known, employ over 30,000 people, more than 6,500 of those in British Columbia alone. They mainly enforce federal laws, just like the FBI do in the United States, Um, And they do that in the country's 10 provinces and three territories. The RCMP also provides provincial policing in all provinces except Ontario and Quebec, as well as local policing in some municipalities and indigenous territories on a contract basis. So that comes into play later, just make note of that. The larger cities, though, they may form their own municipal police departments, which leads us to the next policing group here, the Vancouver Police Department, or the VPD. The VPD is the policing agency that serves the city of Vancouver, though not all of the 21 municipalities known as Metro Vancouver. In 1991, the VPD served approximately 1.6 million people. Today, it is organized in 41 divisions with just over 1,300 sworn officers and over 400 civilian staff. And earlier I mentioned that our shitbag du jour hails from a place called Port Coquitlam, which is a mid-sized suburb of Vancouver, located about 35 minutes east of the city along the junction of the Fraser and Pitt Rivers. It is one of the 21 towns that I talked about in the the area known as Metro Vancouver, but its post-colonial roots are agricultural. Port Coquitlam is served by the police force in nearby Coquitlam, which is one of those municipalities that I mentioned before whose police force is contracted from the RCMP. So besides Port Coquitlam and Coquitlam, the RCMP Coquitlam Detachment also serves Anmore and Belcara for a total service population of around 200,000 people. Within this detachment, there were a little over 200 sworn officers in 2011. That's as far back as I could find. 
Our crimes today, though, take us to a very specific area in this larger region, a neighborhood known as Vancouver's Downtown East Side. Downtown East Side, also known as DTES, or the Low Track, is one of the poorest neighborhoods in all of Canada. But it wasn't always so. Originally, what is now known as Downtown East Side was part of the traditional territories of the Sakakmish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam First Nations. European occupation began in this area in the mid-1800s. It soon became the heart of the city of Vancouver. The turn of the 20th century saw a great deal of immigration to the city, particularly from China and Japan, which brought the formation of a thriving Japan town in downtown Eastside and a nearby Chinatown. The Great Depression hit downtown Eastside hard, and when approximately 10,000 residents were suddenly displaced in 1942, as the entire Japanese population was removed to internment camps, the area became established as an affordable housing option for people kind of down on their luck. In the second half of the 20th century, though, downtown Eastside transformed from a poor but stable area into an infamously blighted neighborhood. And I don't want to pretend that the reasons for this are simple because they're definitely not, but we only have so much time. So I'm just going to mention three of the most common contributing factors that I found. First, there was an influx of hard drugs. Prior to this time, the drugs of choice in that area had been alcohol, marijuana, and psychedelics. But in the 70s and 80s, crack, heroin, and later meth were introduced to this area. Second, because of a regional housing boom and the gentrification of other areas in the city, city leaders cracked down on, quote, vice crimes in those areas and instituted other policies that funneled sex work and drug-related activity out of those areas and into downtown Eastside, essentially making it the only location for those suffering from housing insecurity, mental illness, and substance abuse to exist without constant police interference, essentially ghettoizing those folks. Lastly, the late 20th century saw a dramatic decrease in federal funding for social housing in Canada. A 2013 study of SRO, or single room occupancy tenants in the greater downtown east side, found that over 95% had some form of substance dependence and almost 75% had a mental illness, including 47% with psychosis. Wow. Yeah. Downtown east side also has a higher percentage of indigenous residents, 10% compared to the 2% national average. And at one time, it had the highest rate of HIV infection outside of sub-Saharan Africa. So very poorly resourced. Very under-resourced. I mean, it's like unimaginably under-resourced. So it was in this area under these bleak and largely ignored conditions that our shitbag du jour began preying on women. Some reports have his crimes beginning as early as 1983, but little is known about the early crimes, at least publicly, the laws in Canada around privacy um, and what can be released during an ongoing investigation are very different. And I, I think probably for the better, but it means that the public doesn't know a lot about those early times. Mm-hmm. We do know that he had a difficult and weird childhood, which welcome to the club. 
1979, both his mother and father had died, and he and his younger brother, David, took over control of the family farm. It seems they didn't really much care for farming itself. They sold off a huge portion of the land for what I read somewhere was over 5 million Canadian dollars. But in spite of this, they continued to live in squalor on what was left of the farm. They had some livestock, mainly pigs, but some other animals too, which they raised really just to butcher and sell locally or to friends and neighbors, not at a large scale like their their parents and grandparents had done before. In February 1992, community activists in Vancouver called for a police probe of reports of sex workers murdered and missing from the downtown east side. And at that time, a single police officer was assigned to the multiple cases. So as early as 92, this is already a thing in the community. The problem had reached such a level that a Memorial Women's March was held that year in honor of what was then dubbed the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW, a name that is used frequently um, to refer to this group. To raise awareness about particular crimes that were not being thoroughly investigated, and more broadly, to raise awareness about violence against women, specifically indigenous women and other vulnerable people in the downtown, downtown east side neighborhood. The march has been held in, in the downtown east side neighborhood on Valentine's Day every year since and has spread to other parts of Canada as well. In 1996, the Picton Brothers registered a nonprofit charity called Get Ready for This. It's going to make you want to throw up a little in your mouth. The Piggy Palace Good Times Society. Ugh. And the stated purpose of this nonprofit charity was to, quote, organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups, end quote. Not to be too lighthearted, but even if that had nothing to do with murders at all, that's disgusting sounding. Right? <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, it sounds like it was like written by a bad screenwriter. But the functions that this group threw were mainly unpermitted raves frequented by sex workers and hell's angels. In 1997, Picton was arrested for a knife attack on a sex worker at his farm in Port Coquitlam. He had picked up the woman in downtown Eastside and brought her back to his property. She reported later that he had handcuffed her and then stabbed her in the stomach almost immediately. She managed to somehow get the weapon from him and she stabbed him in self-defense. It's not clear exactly what happened if she ran away or and called the cops or I'm, I'm not clear on all of those details, but in the end, they were both taken to the same nearby hospital for treatment. And a nurse was able to remove the handcuffs from the victim's wrists using a key found in Picton's pocket. So he claimed that she stabbed him first and was trying to steal from him. And charges were later dropped because the prosecutor thought the victim's substance abuse made her an unreliable witness. But what the fuck? I mean, the handcuffed keys are in his pocket. How is she stealing from him when she's handcuffed? I mean... Well, that's how it always works when the cops don't 
actually care about yeah. these women. Yeah. They don't it's care at all. So I mean, blatant. sort of in the same way with Dahmer mm-hmm. and that horrific thing that happened because the cops yes. didn't care about the gay kid. Like, yes. They, yeah. They probably hate these women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the attitude, and, you know, we talked not that long ago about the Green River Killer and that happened kind of, you know, a long time ago and things have hope, hopefully improved. But this is 1997. I mean, I guess for people who are not old like me, 1997 is a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. And still, the word of these women was either being dismissed or it wasn't dismissed, but the prosecutor doesn't think that he can get a conviction, so he doesn't pursue it and just lets this violent sexual sadist back onto the world. So, anyway, continuing with the story, in July 1998, so six and a half years after that first Memorial Women's March, Vancouver police assigned a second officer to look at the increasing number of women reported missing from downtown east side so the number is continuing to climb all of this time the police officer who was assigned detective laura Schenner, received an anonymous tip two days after this assignment that willie Pickton was his guy now this anonymous tipster mentioned in the phone call seeing women's belongings at the farm which he believed belonged to some of the missing women He also said that he had personally heard Picton make jokes about helping friends dispose of bodies and alluding to a meat grinder. So this is information that the police had in July of 1998. Schenner looked up Picton and found that charge that had been dropped from 1997 and urged his superiors to issue a search warrant and bring Picton in for questioning and I think kind of naively thought that it would be a simple matter, but to no avail. For whatever reason, some of it was jurisdictional, and we'll get to this later. They, they didn't do any, they didn't act any further on that tip at that time. In the spring of 1999, an informant told the Vancouver police that a woman she knew had seen a woman's body hanging in Picton's slaughterhouse. When questioned by the police, the woman denied the story at that time. Now, much later, she admitted that she had, in fact, seen the body, but was fearful of Picton and depended on him for money for drugs. And that's why she had taken back what she had reported. But again, I mean, he's charged with a stabbing. He's got a known interest in sex workers. He's got a known interest in sex workers that are are in that downtown east side area. We've got an anonymous tip. And now we've got another person who's saying what they saw at the farm nothing Mm -hmm. in june 1999 so again after all of that i mean it seems plain as day to anyone with two brain cells that there's something going on a police spokeswoman said that the ongoing disappearances were quote cause for concern end quote but there was still no proof of a serial killer at work a hundred thousand Canadian dollars reward was uh, offered for information on the missing women, um, and that was posted later that same month. So now, almost a full two years later, in April two thousand one, with the investigation stalled, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Vancouver Police formed a joint missing women task force. 
In January 2002, police expanded the list of missing women to 50 names now. Finally, on February 5th, 2002, police raided Picton's farm on an unrelated weapons charge after a former employee told RCMP that they had seen illegal guns in Picton's trailer. So again, I mean, it's exactly the same situation. A tipster is saying, I saw an illegal gun versus years ago, a, t- a tipster is saying, I saw a dead woman. I saw items belonging to missing women. I saw, mm-hmm. but now all of a sudden they, they care about this illegal gun and they, they do a search. So on that initial search for weapons, officers saw some of those belongings that they had been told about for years that were obviously belongings, women's belongings, and that gave them probable cause to search further. So they fenced off the entire farm and began the biggest, most expensive forensic search in Canadian history. On February 22nd, 2002, Picton was charged with murdering two women. Both had been from the downtown Eastside neighborhood. But the forensic search continued at the farm until November 2003, with a total cost estimated to have been about 70 million Canadian, which is about 55 million US dollars. I read somewhere that criminologists gathered and tested around 200,000 DNA samples. Authorities eventually revealed that the DNA of 33 women had been found in various buildings, freezers, and machines at the farm. By October 2004, the list of missing women had grown to 69 names based on reviews of old cases. So again, at this point, they're having to reconstruct history. There are Mm -hmm. people that are missing that they hadn't associated with this case because all along they were just refusing to believe or see that it was a serial case. So names were added to the list. Police reported that the DNA of 31 of the women on that list of 69 names was found at the farm. But because the methods that Picton used for disposing remains and the number of women who perished at the farm, it's just, it's unknown, you know, how many people may have died there. Only 21 of the victims have been positively identified to date. And ultimately, Picton was only tried for six of the murders the six that they had the most evidence for, but he confessed to 49. And some believe that there were even more because they're still missing women and no one knows what happened to them. The decision to sever the cases, so the six that went to trial and then 21 that were stayed, and that number 21 was later reduced to 20, it caused a lot of backlash and various feelings, obviously, among the families of the victims whose cases were never tried. Some said that they were grateful to be spared the ordeal of a trial, while others felt that their loved ones were really denied justice. And again, there are still a ton of women who are, are unaccounted for. Yeah. But on December 9, 2007, the jury returned a verdict that Picton was not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but was guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. Now, I'm not an expert in Canadian law, and I don't don't even know the difference between first and second degree in Canada, but, I mean, it's just kind of heartbreaking. But on December 11, 2007, after reading 18 victim impact statements, 
British Columbia Supreme Court Judge James Williams sentenced Picton to life with no possibility of parole for 15 years, the maximum punishment for second-degree murder at the time in Canada. And strangely, but I guess reassuringly, that's also the maximum sentence for a first-degree murder conviction at that time. So it didn't matter that he didn't, he wasn't convicted mm-hmm. of the highest level of crime. He got the same sentence. That's something at least. Yeah. One thing, and, you know, I went through when I read the 179-page transcript of his confession. Now, the confession was a confession to a cellmate that was recorded by an undercover police officer. Mm-hmm. And so I read that whole thing. And I mean, it's a lot. Um, and I'm not going to go into it all. But one thing that is interesting is in that conversation, and it was this conversation over three days or four days, he also mentions a couple of times that if he goes down, at least 15 other people would go down with him, which is not surprising when you think of the scope of this crime. Yeah. But no one else has ever been charged with any related crimes. His younger brother, David, um, who incidentally was convicted of an unrelated sexual assault in 1992, was investigated pretty intensely, but never charged. Another person was also investigated and never charged, but again, because of Canada's strict laws preventing public release of details, not much is known or publicly available about those inquiries. I don't think anyone familiar with the case, though, believes David wasn't, at the very least, aware of what was going on, if not involved. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the crime. Now, in previous episodes, we've gone through the list of victims, and I haven't said much at all in the story about the victims or really about the nature of the crime. I mean, all of that is out there if you want it, but, you know, it just it's it's unnecessary, I think, to the story that I want to tell. And the reason that I'm not listing the victims the way that I have done in the past is that a lot of the victims, as I mentioned before, identified as First Nations or Indigenous peoples. I couldn't find the exact number, but somewhere between half and two-thirds of the known victims identified as Indigenous. Hmm. I also read in my research that one of the families, an Indigenous family, asked at one point that their daughter's name, quote, not be spoken out of respect. Now, again, recognizing that we're talking about families and communities within cultures that I don't know much about, I'm choosing to err on the side of caution and hold the names in my mind and my heart and not speak them here publicly. Just know that these women and girls were people who were loved dearly and whom society had given short shrift in a multitude of ways. People who were vulnerable as a result of experiences that were difficult and traumatic and entirely out of their control. So instead, to honor the victims, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the larger issue that runs through this case, which is Mm -hmm. the systemic racism. And we've touched on this in some other cases. I mean, it's applicable a lot because systemic racism is a huge issue across a lot of identities. But in Canada specifically, there is a lot of focus recently on the systemic racism um, against Indigenous peoples and knowing that violence against women, the way that intersects with Indigenous communities and the violence against them, it's really, I think, 
a huge issue and was a huge part of how this case went so wrong and why this monster was free to commit his crimes for so long. So in British Columbia, there is something called the Highway of Tears, which is about a 450 mile corridor of highway 16, 97, and five, which runs between Prince George and Prince Rupert in Northern British Columbia. So some distance away from the crimes we're talking about today. But officially, there have been 18 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQIA plus folks along the Highway of Tears since 1969. Oh. The official tally, though, only includes disappearances and murders that took place within one mile of those highways. So according to other organizations, and I think importantly, organizations which are indigenous-led, The count in this area is much higher, upwards of 40. So this, I I talk about this because this is a problem across Canada, not just in this one case, not just in this one location, not just in downtown east side where indigenous population is higher than in other areas. This is a problem across Canada. And I'll talk about in a little bit. I mean, this is a problem in the United States too. I'm not singling out Canada. But under Prime Minister Trudeau, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was officially launched on September 1st, 2016. Part of the work of this this group was to do an investigation into the systemic issues that create opportunities that lead to disproportional violence against Indigenous women and girls. And one of the outcomes of that was a report. The final report was entitled Reclaiming Power in Place, the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And it was released in June of 2019. Another outcome of the inquiry was the formation of the Forensic Document Review Project, which subpoenaed 28 police forces, issued 30 subpoenas, and reviewed 35 reports and obtained and analyzed 174 files consisting of over 135,000 documents and representing almost 600,000 pages. So this project was intended to go back and take another look at cases through the lens of indigenous violence. Mm -hmm. The project resulted in several significant findings, which I'm going to read verbatim from the Wikipedia page, and the link is in, in the episode notes, because they are really salient, I think, to the Picton case, and they reflect issues that belong, that exist across territories, across provinces, across uh, jurisdictions and policing agencies. So the first the first um, finding that they that they listed, there is no quote reliable estimate of the numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQQIA persons in Canada, end quote. So I mean just let that sink in. There is no reliable estimate of the numbers of missing people. Like there are so many missing and we we don't even track. Like that's how little importance we have given this issue is that we don't even know the number. I mean, that could make me cry right here and now. Yeah. The 2014 and 2015 RCMP reports on MMIWG, so Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, 
identified, quote, narrow and incomplete causes of homicides of indigenous women and girls in Canada, end quote. The, quote, often cited statistic that indigenous men are responsible for 70% of murders of indigenous women and girls is not factually based, end quote. So again, I mean, this myth-making that, mm-hmm. yeah, that these crimes, the you know, it's similar in the U.S. to, oh, black-on-black, quote, black-on-black violence. I mean, that is a story that is used to erase and minimize violence against these communities. The fourth finding they had, quote, virtually no information was found with respect to either the numbers or causes of missing and murdered Métis and Inuit women and girls and indigenous two-spirit LGBTQQIA persons. So no information. I mean, again, this just highlights the fact that nobody's looking at this. Nobody's paying attention to this. No information with <laughs> respect to either the numbers or causes. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. And then the next finding, quote, indigenous communities, particularly in remote areas, are underprioritized and under-resourced. Seems obvious. Yeah. The next finding, quote, there is a lack of communication to families and indigenous communities by police services and a lack of trust of the police by indigenous communities, end quote. Again, I mean, hardly something that seems like you need a whole study to, to say. Yeah. Um, and yet here it is. The next finding, quote, there continues to be a lack of communication with and coordination between the police and other service agencies, end quote. So, you know, this is a problem that we've seen in other serial cases. I think it's kind of endemic in in law enforcement um, and the way law enforcement is set up in North America. And the last finding, quote, Deaths and disappearances of indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQQIA people are marked by indifference. Specifically, prejudice, stereotypes, and inaccurate beliefs and attitudes about indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQQIA persons negatively influence police investigations, and therefore, death and disappearances are investigated and treated differently from other cases. End quote. Yeah. So that's the official finding. This is not our opinion. This is not, you know, somebody just spouting off. I mean, these are the official findings. And many critics of these reports say that as far as they went, they didn't go far enough. They were whitewashed and and they really didn't even reflect the magnitude of the problem. But, of course, violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQIA plus folks isn't just a Canadian problem. In the United States, 34%, or more than one in three, indigenous women will be raped during their lifetime. For context, women in general in the United States, the risk is one in five. Already a horrifically high number, but one in three. One in three. More than four in five American indigenous women have experienced violence, and more than one in two have experienced sexual violence. But the U.S. is far behind Canada in addressing the issue at a national level. If you want to support the work of eliminating violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQIA folks, we encourage you to check out a couple of groups. The first one is the Moose Hide Campaign, which is based in Canada. It's an Indigenous-led grassroots movement of men, boys, and all Canadians to end violence against women and children. You can donate at Moose Hide Campaign 
ca slash about hyphen us slash donation hyphen campaigns. Or you can just go to the episode notes and click on that link. The next group is the Indian Law Resource Center, which is based in the United States. It's a nonprofit law and advocacy organization established and directed by American Indians. It is home of the Safe Women, Strong Nations project, which has the goal of ending violence against Native women and girls. You can donate at indianlaw.org donate, or again, just go to our episode notes on our website and click on that link. If nothing else, take some time to educate yourself about violence against Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit LGBTQIA folks and the systemic barriers to justice faced by the Indigenous community. A good place to begin is the excellent CBC podcast, Missing and Murdered, Season 1, Who Killed Alberta Williams. Well, that was very heavy, but very good information. Thank you for putting it together that way. Yeah, I hope, I hope it's, I don't know, I hope it's helpful. You know, with these stories, you never know. There's so many different ways you could tell the story, and it's hard to know what is the right way. But, you know, I, I tried to do it mindfully and centering the victims and the needs of that community, so. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the pop culture side tells it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I guess I'll just jump right in, starting with music and worst for first. Mm -hmm. So clearly the heinousness, the feeding victims to the pigs, like really takes center stage into the culture side. Yeah. So the Seattle punk band The Accused wrote a song about Picton called, and apologies for the name, Hooker Fortified Pork Products. Ugh disgusting and that's on their 2005 oh martha album the song's main character is willie p and he was generally referred to by the people who knew him as willie Mm -hmm. and the song talks about him cruising the east end of course a reference to vancouver's downtown east side Mm -hmm. the song is very upsetting and i did not put it on our spotify playlist because i hate that i listened to it yeah Sort of in the same boat, the German psychobilly band Madsen wrote a song about Picton called Pig Farm. It released in 2007 on their album 20 Years in Sen Sen. And mm-hmm. that one you can hear on our playlist. Also a grindcore band called Picton that released an EP called Feed the Pig. It's just something about this genre of music and these like gross-ass white guys. Yeah. Ugh. And then the slam death metal band Devourment wrote a song about Picton called Fed to the Pigs. And 2009 Quebec rock band Exterio wrote a song entitled Le Seigneur de Agneau, which mm-hmm. is translated to The Lord of the Lambs. And they filmed a music video about Picton. And that song is actually probably the least bad of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put that one on our playlist as well. So in terms of musical influence, there's a lot of similarity of sound and genre when it's looking at a crime this disgusting and this awful. Yeah. There's not pop ballads. There's not indie. It's all like hardcore, grindcore. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is giving too much credit, but I wonder if it's just one of those things that it's like the sun. You can't look straight at it. 
because it's just too strong in a very bad way. Well, and I also think, not that this is the point you were making, but continuing the thread of our Losers of Chaos episode and discussion, Mm -hmm. like this type of thing just lends itself to this genre is like shock and awe and like what's the grossest thing we can do and Mm -hmm. it's not for me that's for sure yeah uh moving to tv csi had an episode called leap and lizards that references this case Hmm. Uh, Criminal Minds featured an episode set in Ontario, which followed a case where the large number of victims were killed and their bodies were fed to pigs. Most of the other elements of the crime were significantly different from the real case, and honestly, it probably shied away from the fact that the victims were Indigenous folks as well. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, the episode aired with additional content warnings, stating that the specific episode would upset viewers due to the storyline. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Canada, they have a a TV crime drama called Da Vinci's Inquest, and it featured an ongoing storyline about a serial killer targeting Vancouver area sex workers who disposed of bodies at pig farms. So a pretty one-to-one. Yeah. And then that TV series ended in 2005, so two years before the trial. Mm-hmm. Moving over to books, Canadian investigative journalist and author Stevie Cameron wrote the book On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women. Mm-hmm. And it uses the life experiences of Picton's victims for a fictional story about women in downtown East Side who became victims of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. The book was a huge success for Cameron. It was nominated for British Columbia's National Award for Canadian Nonfiction and was a finalist for both the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Nonfiction and the Charles Taylor Prize for Literary Nonfiction. Mm. So aside from all of the critical acclaim, it was a bestseller and it's been called the definitive resource on the Picton case. In fact, the book was so successful that it was adapted into a 2017 movie of the same name. And the thing that I loved about the movie is that it forgoes sensationalism and relegates Pictum himself to a bit part, and it Mm -hmm. focuses on the women. Mm -hmm. The movie was also a critical success. Ella Maya Tailfeathers won Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role in a Dramatic Program or Limited Series by the Canadian Screen Award. Ella also won Best Performance at the Vancouver International Women in Film Festival. And director Rachel Talalay won an Achievement in Filmmaking Award at uh, LA Skins Fest. So, I mean, difficult watch, but I value as well the approach to, I mean, Picton is just a piece of shit, two-bit character. This is an exploration of the women, the real lives that were taken. Yeah. Uh, There are even more awards and nominations for the film, so needless to say, Sometimes Canadian media doesn't always make it to us Americans, but this is definitely a movie worth watching if if it's something you have the the stomach to explore this type of material, which as listeners to this podcast, there's a good chance you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are some other movies that are not worth the same attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2005, the low-budget horror film Killer Picton was released, immediately hit with controversy, Its release in Australia was delayed after the government of Canada put pressure on... It had an Australian distributor, so 
the Canadian mm-hmm. government put pressure on them to pull the movie from its release schedule for legal reasons, citing Canada's ban on publishing details of alleged crimes of prior to the trial. Mm-hmm. The movie was later released in Australia after Picton was convicted of murder. So, interesting bit of trivia. Yeah. Even with all of that, it has a 2.1 out of 10 stars on IMDb. Mm. Not good. (laughs) There was a successful 2016 documentary called On the Farm that details Mm -hmm. the case, and that won the award for Best Documentary at the Writers Guild of Canada. Um, And while there's surprisingly little more in movie and TV arenas, there are more books. So Mm -hmm. Maggie DeVries, the sister of Sarah DeVries, one of... Picton's victims Mm -hmm. was searching for answers as to how and why her sister disappeared and that led to the 2003 novel Missing Sarah a heart-rending memoir that won the first annual George Rigo award for social awareness in BC literature Mm -hmm. as well as the 13th annual Van City book prize for best book pertaining to women's issues Mm. in 2001 Trevor Green's grim but revealing bad date the lost girls of Vancouver's low track was released and this novel provides really heart-wrenching perspectives from relatives mm-hmm. like Deborah Hardeen, whose daughter Angela disappeared in 1998. Green wrote, quote, After fruitlessly trying to get her daughter declared a missing person, Deborah was told by a police officer that no one on the VPD, so Vancouver Police, knew anything about her or any of the other missing women because no one gives a damn, end uh. quote. Can you imagine? Oh my God, the anger, like the rage. Yeah. What do you even do with it? I I can't imagine. I mean, I can try to extend my empathy, but I truly cannot imagine. And I, again and again, and especially in any non-white story, like, or, I mean, I I actually don't know about this person, but just like people at the bottom of the societal yeah uh, ladder. They don't give a shit. I mean, I'm going to go on a tirade, but like cops exist to protect property, not people. Yeah. That's how they were founded. And hundreds of years later, I don't know that we're that far off. Yeah. <sighs> but another book on the topic is Barb Daniels' biography, She's No Lady, the story of Jamie Lee Hamilton. Now, long before the remains of missing women were found on Picton's farm, Mayor Philip Owen and the police were reluctant to accept that the disappearances of sex workers could be linked, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Then, Jamie Lee Hamilton dumped a box of women's shoes on the steps of Vancouver City Hall, and the rest was history. Hamilton urged Mayor Owen to get involved. She worked in the sex trade for 10 years before she became a transgendered advocate for sex workers in the downtown east side. So that's another great book that's worth the read. Mm -hmm. Um, The case also influenced Michael Slade's book, Swastika, in which Slade used Picton as the basis for one of its characters, a Vancouver serial killer, of course, feeding the remains of victims to pigs. That seems Mm -hmm. to be the real sticking point and kind of like the shock and awe Mm -hmm. pieces. Um, Interestingly, Slade is a pen name for Canadian novelist Jay Clark, a lawyer who's participated in more than 100 criminal cases and who specialized in criminal insanity. Just Mm. interesting bit of trivia as I was researching. Yeah. Lastly, in 2016, the book Picton in His Own Words was released for sale, which led to confusion and major controversy. 
No one knew how Picton could have released the book from the high security prison in which he was held. Allegedly, he was able to get his manuscript out of prison by passing it to a former cellmate who then sent it to a retired construction worker from California named Michael Childress. Mm. And then Childress then typed the manuscript and is credited as the author of the 144-page book. Mm. The back cover of the book called Picton the Fall Guy and its rambling pages are interspersed with passages from the Bible and transcripts from interviews between Picton and the police. So British Columbia's provincial government and Outskirts Press contacted Amazon and asked it to be withdrawn from sale. During the time it was on Amazon, family members of Picton's victims asked the public not to read it. More than 50,000 people signed a petition asking for Amazon to pull it, and multiple one-star reviews were added to the book's listing with messages urging customers not to buy it. It was removed from Amazon and Barnes & Noble soon after. Mm. So in a statement, Outskirts Press said, quote, We have a long-standing policy of not working with nor publishing work by incarcerated individuals, end quote. So the book was listed as being by that Californian, Michael Childress, not under Picton's name. Mm -hmm. It's good that the publishers pulled it because British Columbia does not have a law preventing criminals from profiting from their crimes. And as a result, there have been calls to introduce legislation that would prevent this. Mm. And... It's not unprecedented. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and Ontario all have laws that prevent this type of criminals profiting from books like this. Mm-hmm. So while the culture influence and the media side is somewhat limited, it's still a fascinating look at how pop culture can absorb, digest, and reproduce a case like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like with something this heinous, it takes some time to to be like fully digested, like you said, and turned into anything with insight. You know, I think what comes out first is kind of the shock and awe. And then in time, as people are able to process in some way and, and turn it into something productive. I mean, some people do that faster, but this seems like one that may take more time. Yeah, I mean, I can get behind books, movies starring indigenous women telling the story of indigenous women that were victims, not horror movies, of just some piece of shit slaughtering people and feeding them to pigs in this way. I mean, I think if, if it could somehow advance this law and... British Columbia, where police, or not police, where uh, criminals can't profit off of their crimes. If it could lead to advocacy and changes in the legal system and public concern and care for indigenous folks, then I'm all for it. But just weird little guys singing about fucked up shit in their screamo songs, I'm not for it. Yeah, fuck them. I mean, the thing that really gets me about this one and just uh, I find so hard, and I mean, it's true in a lot of them, but it's like they're vulnerable because society doesn't care about them. And then they're punished twice. Like they're made vulnerable and then nobody cares because they're vulnerable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like there's just no winning 
in a way. It, it just, yeah, it's despicable. And, and, you know, thinking about, put you put yourself in that position. If my daughter, God forbid, like was ever missing and I go to the police who theoretically are supposed to help me and they say like, no one cares. I mean, the universe could not contain my rage. How those families carry on and have any sort of semblance of a normal life is is hard to fathom. Having to take a box of shoes and then dump them out in front of the mayor yeah. to say, why aren't you doing anything about this? Yeah. It's horrendous. It's crazy. I mean, why... I, I don't know. It seems like a theme that I've seen come up a couple of times in a couple of cases, including ones we haven't covered yet, where police are resistant to attribute things to a serial killer. And you just lose time and there are more victims. And I don't understand. Like, that seems like one thing. It's better to err on the side of assuming it's a serial killer until you know that it's not. And I don't mean publicly. Like, don't get every the communities in in a panic but internally to be looking as if that is a solid possibility i mean in this case it's just like willful ignorance it's so plain to see well and there's so many but just because it's so fresh this one green river killer if you say serial killer then you have to care about these women right if you don't say serial killer, you don't have to care. Right. Because they don't care about these women being murdered one-off. The right. only thing that escalates it. That's why they're able to have this many victims. Right. Because they don't care. And, you know, reports show that Picton was definitely aware of this. I don't know that it fueled his selection. I, I, I mean, I think that he was known throughout his life to have never had a girlfriend. And so I think sex workers were his kind of only sexual outlet. And that, so I don't know that he targeted them because they were vulnerable, but he definitely was aware of it and he exploited that. And that is, that is certain. It's a hard one. I had a thought, but it's gone. So I chatted with Caroline, our Canadian friend and podcast friend. She said that, she heard the story and the news so much so often but also none of the details because of the media blackout mm-hmm. and canadian laws yeah and but that even still this one hit close to home i mean as a bc resident yeah. like so even though the grisly details weren't in the news like just the yeah. realizations and that's such an interesting contradiction to the way I view it in America Mm -hmm. of like I mean we love the gory details Mm -hmm. the news lives for the clicks so it's so interesting to think about what how that coverage must be handled without the details right I mean you know I think in terms of the justice system it has to be better because people are not hearing you know I mean we saw in the John Bonet case People are going into juries already having a lot of conflicting information and understanding, and there was really no way to stop it. Like, you would have had to take that trial to another country to avoid that. It had so much press. Um, So I think it probably helps the judicial process. 
But in this case, I think it also had some impact in that officials who wanted to pretend like there wasn't a serial killer, they were able to do that because the public is not accustomed to expecting details about ongoing investigations and ongoing cases. So it kind of allowed it to exist in a mysterious space and it required the families to apply that pressure. And this was late. I mean, late as in recent. Yeah. This isn't like, you know, when we have that whole rush of the 60s, 70s, early 80s. Like, people know about serial killers. People know about serial killers targeting sex workers, targeting indigenous women. Like, not benefit of the doubt, but this doesn't have any of, like, what what would have happened in, like, the 1970s. Yeah. Like, it was known and the police didn't care. Right. I mean, I did read in a couple of places there were questions about were there people in the the local detachment of the RCMP. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> All these acronyms who maybe had been to some of the raves, maybe were frequenting the Piggy Palace. And so... You know, I didn't see any hardcore conspiracy theories, but I mean, again, people are human, small town. It's not inconceivable that there were some police officers at some of these parties who maybe didn't want that information to come out and so didn't actively suppress, but certainly didn't like rigorously follow up on things and and whatever. But I do think that it's harder to kind of put pet hypotheses together with so little information. But I think something was going on there. There were more people involved. I don't know how something of that scale could happen without, you know, people were all, and and that was part of what he said when he initially was proclaiming innocence. He's like, there were people always at the farm. I couldn't be doing this because there were always people there. And it's like, well, there's another answer, which is just that those other people knew and nobody did anything or they participated. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not a serial killer, but I think back about like the DC sniper, mm-hmm. which was a mass killer, but for the sake of killing one singular person. Mm-hmm. And I think about like the media hysterics and like the desperation to get answers for that versus anything having to do with like sex workers because this was oh this was like real i i I need to like say air quotes because people can't see me in the zoom like you can but like (laughs) these are like real upstanding people that are being killed not people that you know society doesn't care about police don't care about yeah Well, I mean, I think it's that victim blaming. Well, if they weren't there, if they weren't sex workers, if they weren't addicted to drugs, then this would have never happened. And it's like, no, if he wasn't a fucking monster, this wouldn't have happened. Like, that's where it begins and ends, you know? And any vulnerabilities or issues that these people had, they had for very good reasons because they exist in a fucked up system, you know, and that applies Mm. across the board, not just to the indigenous folks. But I mean, people who are, are addicted to drugs usually have a very good reason. It's because their lives on drugs are better than their lives not on drugs. And a huge percentage of them have been victims of sexual violence. And, you know, I could go on and on. So 
it's just, again, it's that double victimization. It's like they're oppressed and treated poorly by society. And when that turns into a drug addiction or some other thing that is deemed unsavory by society, then they're punished again by blaming them for anything that might happen to them after. And it's like, no, fuck you. But, you know, police are using these stereotypes again. And and is it the suburban white moms with their marijuana, now their heroin? Is mm-hmm. it the Wall Street folks with their Coke and ecstasy? Mm-hmm. No, it's it's only poor drug users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine if a bunch of, like, suburban white women went missing like this. I mean... We see what happens when one white woman goes missing. It's like, you know, the media just stops reporting on anything else for the next week. But 40, yeah. 40 white suburban housewives, soccer moms, like, I mean, that would be the end of times in media terms. And here it's nothing, nothing. But it's, it's also crazy. it would never get that far because they would start investigating from missing woman one. It's true. It's true. It's gross. Well, if you feel so compelled, um, there are those great resources that could use any financial donations. They're in our episode notes. Uh, if you Again, if you feel compelled to make the world a little bit better. Yeah. But, I mean, it could be even something as simple as on social media, follow them and like their posts and share their posts and raise awareness. Because, again, in the United States, we know that this problem exists. But the awareness is much less than it is in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, take some time for yourself. Yeah. Focus on some things that make you happy, not just crime podcasts. And <laughs> as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfowlpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 